Chapter 17 of The Grey Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeremiah Sutherland, Victoria, British Columbia. The Grey Man by S. R. Crockett. Chapter 17 The Corbys at the Eagle's Nest. One snowy day, I mind it was a Thursday according to the day of the week, I had ridden to Girvan by the shore road. I journeyed unmolested, save that one sent a shot after me as I passed the tower of Girvan Mains. But this not so much, I think, with intent to do me an injury, as because they saw my Cassillis colours, and could not let them pass unchallenged by a yet of the Bargany folk. But upon my return I got one of the greatest surprises of my life, for as I rode gladly into the courtyard of Culain, lo, there was my lord out on the steps, with the noble courtesy and distinction, which none could assume so well as he, being indeed natural to him, bidding farewell to a pair of guests, whom I never looked to see in the courtyard of Culain, save as it might be coming in decently, heels first, for the purposes of Christian burial. The two strangers were John Muir of Auchendrain, and the young Laird, his son. The old man was dressed as I first saw him, in plain fine cloth of blue without decoration. He wore no arms or any armour that was visible, though by the square setting of his body as he came down the steps, I judged that he wore a stand of chain-mail underneath. His son James, a cruel, loutish, hot-headed, but not wholly ill-looking young man, was clad in the gayest fashion. He wore the wide, falling lace collar which Prince Henry had brought in from France, and a pointed doublet and wide breeches of the newest English mode. It was John Muir who was speaking, for his son was but a lout, and had little to say all the days of him. He waved his hand to the steps, by the door of Culain, whereon there stood Marjorie Kennedy, with her arm on Nell's shoulder, both being pale as death, and seeming more dowy and sad than I had ever seen them look before. "'It is to be the burying of strife,' cried Auchendrain. "'In this loving cup I drink it. The day of our love is at the dawning, and the auguries of the time to come are of the happiest.' to our next and sweeter merry-making. And Sir Thomas, with his face one beaming smile of pleasure, bade him a loving farewell, and told him to haste back, for that cousins thus joined in affection could not be too often together. And all the while I sat Dom Nicholas as one that is sunk fathoms deep in blank astonishment. As Auchendrain rode through the gateway, he waved his hand to me, and turning to Culain, where he stood looking after them, he cried in the hearing of them all, you have there the handsomest and the boldest squire in all the south country, Colain. This is the bree that I hear of this young man everywhere I go. And so, still smiling and bowing, he rode away with his son half a length of his horse behind him. But I gave him no greeting, neither yea nor nay, but regarded him with a fixed countenance. For my heart was like stone within me, because of the sorrow that I saw coming on the house and could no ways prevent. Now the bitterness of this winter did not come till some time after the new year. It was about the midst of January, when the frost bit most keenly, and the snow began to fall most deeply. The Culain lads, James, Alexander, and little David, who was my favourite, caused the court and outbuildings to ring with happiness. Joy and peace seemed indeed for a little to have come back to Culain. This was the first snow since David had donned the trunks, and laid by the baron's kilts, which are indeed mortally cold wear in the winter season when it comes to rolling in the snow. David, as I say, was my favourite, and continually in my loneliness a comfort to me, though I have not hitherto often mentioned him, seeing that the young lads of Culain come not into my tale greatly, saving at this time. 
though in the coming day they may into the tales others shall tell, when we that now prank it so gaily are no better than the broken shards of a drained pottle-pot. But little Davy was a merry lad, and I am glad that there is occasion for me to name him in this history. Davy was now manfully equipped in doublet and trunk-hosen of duffel-gray homespun, so thick that his brothers feigned that with a little trouble and propping they stood up very well by themselves when their daily tenant had untrussed him and gone to bed. And ever the snow came down. It lay deep on all the face of the country, but more especially it had swirled into the courtyard of Coulain, so that the very steps of the door were sleeked, and great wreaths lay every way about the court. The lads made revel in it, borrowing shovels from the stables, and throwing up the snow on either side, so as to make narrow passages between the different doors of the castle and the offices about. I cannot set down, because that there is press of matters more serious yet to be related, a tithe of the merry pranks the rogues wrought in their madness. They reveled in the smother of the snow like whelps that are turned loose. Yet because there is none too much of merriment in this chronicle, I shall make shift to tell somewhat of their quipsome rascaldom. It chanced one morning that Alexander, who was of a mirthful mind, stood by a little door which led into the house wherein our peats and turfs were kept for the fires, so that it might not be necessary to bring a supply each day from the peat stacks on the hill where the greater store was. Whether Sandy's head ached from having eaten too many cakes at the time of the new year, I know not, but suddenly it came into his mind that it might be a desirable thing, and a cooling, to stick his bullet head into a mighty snowdrift which lay in front of the peat-house door. So accordingly, for no particular reason, he bent himself into an arch, and thrust his head neck-deep into the snow. At this moment came his elder brother, James Kennedy, upon the scene, and his mood was also merry. "'Bless the rascal,' quoth he, whither hath his tidy lump of a top-knot betaken itself to. So without loss of a moment the rogue made him a large ball of snow, well compacted, and caused it to burst upon the stretched trusses of Sandy's breeches, with a noise like the breaking of an egg upon a wall. Sandy snatched his head from the snow, swift as a blade that bends itself to the straight, and stood erect. There was no one in sight save little Davy, who danced at a distance and laughed innocently at the jest for James, the doer of it, had instantly dropped into a deep snow passage, whereat Sandy, cured as to his head, but villainously stung in the breach, turned him about in fierce anger, seeking for someone to truncheon. The lad Davy's laugh annoyed him, and Sandy, being an adept at the palm play, sent a snowball at his younger brother, which took him smartly upon the cheek. Instantly Davy, poor callant, set up a cry of pain, which brought his sister Nell upon the scene with all the furies in the tangle of her hair. "'Ye muckle good-for-nothing calves!' she cried, addressing both her unseen brothers, whom she well knew to be lying hidden somewhere among the snow-passages of the courtyard. "'I will bring Launce Kennedy to you with a naughty stick, and that by my father's orders, plodding at a bear in that gate, and garring him greet. "'Ye think I canna see ye, but if ye dinna come out decently, I will come and bring ye. "'Ye may think black shame o' yourselves.' "'And this I do not doubt that James and Sandy did.' for to be flighted upon by a lass, lying prone the while upon one's stomach in a snowbank, does not make for self-respect. So both the lads began to crawl away as best they might from Nell's dangerous neighbourhood. It jumped greatly with my humour to watch them from the upper window of the armoury, which looked abroad over the court. All unwitting, they approached the one to the other with their heads down, and at the corner, each running with full speed upon his hands and knees, they knocked their skulls together soundly, with a well-resounding crack which pleased me. Instantly they clinched and fought like wildcats, biting and fisting in the snow, till their father, attracted from the hall by the noise, 
came down and laid upon them both right soundly, with the great whip wherewith the dogs were beaten when they were trained for hunting. All this was excellent sport to me, but the best was yet to come. In a little thereafter I saw Nell, who was a merry lass when there was nothing upon her mind, come quietly out the side door that led to the kitchen places, with David in her hand. She set him within a small flanking tower, which in old days had been loopholed for arrows. Then she locked the door upon him, taking the key with her. Before she went she handed the boy two or three snowballs made from the wet slushy snow, where the sunshine had caused some drops to melt off the roof and fall from the eaves. Thus she went to the corner, I watching with joy the while from the window of the armory. "'Jamie, Sandy,' she cried, "'come hither, lads. There's something here for your private ear.' At first the boys would not move, still smarting and sulky from their father's training whip, but in a little they came, and Nell enticed them with a repeated promise of something for their private ear, the artful minx, till she had them exactly opposite the little window where David was posted with his weapons of offence. Suddenly, from the arrow slot, there came a discharge of artillery. The providence that helps the weak put pith and fusion into little David's arm, as though it had been the smooth stone of the brook that sped whizzing to the brazen front of Goliath, the first moist shot of David's ordnance plumped with a splash into the ear of Sandy. In an instant I lay upon the floor in the laughter which comes only from beholding silly things. From there below me were James and Sandy Kennedy, each dancing upon the point of their shoon, and with their little fingers digging in their several ears to excavate from thence the well-compacted snow wherewith little David had taken his fitting revenge. Nor was the occupation made easier for them by the vexatious commentaries of their sister Nell, who repeated over and over again to them, between her bursts of laughter, Did I not tell you that if you came to the corner of the tower, you would get something for your private ear? This will learn you to let wee Davy Elaine. End of chapter 17